Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very honored and very uh, pleased to bring the conversation I had with Venki Ramakrishna. Uh, Venki is the group leader at the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the uh, Cambridge Biomedical Campus, United Kingdom. He's also a fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge and was president of the Royal Society from 2015 to 2020. He has a background in physics. He has a bachelor's of science in physics. He also has a PhD in physics, but was uh, then made the switch to biology. And he has been doing biology for, for some time. Uh, what is most notable, along he's had many awards and uh, many, many accolades, uh, he is most uh, notably known for um, winning the Nobel uh, Prize in chemistry in 2009, along with Thomas uh, Stites and Ada Yonath. And he has also uh, received uh, India's second highest civilian honor. He has also been knighted uh, in 2012 for his services to molecular biology. Uh, he's uh, In 2020, he was elected to American Philosophical Society and board member of the British Library. He's also a member of the Order of Merit as recently as 2022. Uh, so he is uh, not only is he a uh, Nobel Prize winner, but he's also a knight and he has done so many things. And the reason for all of these accolades is that he was highly, highly influential and instructive in the structure and detailing the structure of the ribosome uh, for the cell which is absolutely incredible. And it was uh, quite a, a joy to, to talk with him. Uh, he is, I mean, exceptionally brilliant, but one of the uh, most uh, humble and down-to-earth uh, people I've probably ever talked to. And uh, he wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago, and it was a paperback was uh, just released, uh, entitled Gene Machine, The Race to Decipher the Secrets of the Ribosome. And so it's a quasi-autobiographical and then quasi-scientific, kind of which is uh, really, really wonderful. And in it, um, he talks about, you know, in the conversation, we talk about uh, how he came from India and he was studying physics there and came to the United States and studied physics. And then, you know, in the middle of the PhD program, he said, uh, physics isn't for me. And he wanted to do biology and he made that switch. We talk about the layout of the ribosome. We talk about DNA. RNA, mRNA, and proteins. We talk about um, when he first got started in, in studying the ribosome in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, what was known then? And then what was his kind of contribution and how we've learned so much up to the present and how we were able to get the structure of, of the ribosome? We spend some time talking about x-ray crystallography and his trip to the LMB for, for the uh, crystallography. We talk about his experience of seeing atomic subunits of ribosomes for the first time and, and, and what that was like as being one of the first people to ever see that and to, to really uh, observe that. Uh, he lays out in the book and in the conversation the experience of being nominated for the Nobel Prize, what that's like, how they inform you, uh, attending it, what it's, you know, just the whole thing. And it, it, was, it was like a kind of peeling back the curtain a bit. Um, and, and how it is to win a Nobel Prize, but, but what the experience is like, which was really, really uh, fascinating. And, and really, 
he, he talks about it in the conversation, but how your life kind of changes afterwards, which is, which is really uh, interesting to think about. And then we talk about the future of ribosome research and uh, where that's going and, and, and more importantly, why it's essential for understanding uh, many things uh, in medical science, but also for uh, potential cures for things and being a contribution there. So it's all very, very important. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com, also on YouTube. So please follow, like, share, uh, and uh, subscribe and contribute as, uh, as, as much as you can. And uh, telling, your, telling your friends always helps. And uh, make sure you, you uh, go out and get uh, Venki's book. It's, it's uh, quite, uh, quite wonderful. And uh, now I bring you Venki Ramakrishna. I am here with Venki Ramakrishna. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, to speaking with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you are you are known for many things. Uh, one of them is uh, the book that you have written, which is now in paperback, called Gene Machine: The Race to Decipher the Secrets of the Ribosome. You're also known for winning the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Uh, you're known for uh, understanding the structure and laying it out of the ribosome, which is uh, amazing. Uh, so you're known for many things, which we'll get into. Uh, I guess the first question I want to ask is for people that are unfamiliar with you and your work and stuff. What's kind of the snapshot of who you are uh, professionally, academically, and uh, what, you, what you currently spend your time doing? Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm what you loosely call a molecular biologist. I like to understand the molecules that are at the heart of life. And in fact, uh, from 1978, when I was still in my 20s, uh, I settled in on a very complicated molecule that's at the heart of what makes us alive. And that's this large complex called the ribosome, which is the machine that translates the information in our genes to make the proteins that are coded by those genes. Hmm. So, you know, if, if we say everybody thinks they know what DNA is, they think, oh, yeah, it's about our genes and so on. But then you ask them, well, what is a gene? Hmm. And they'll say, oh, well, it's those characteristics we inherit or pass on, you know, and you can have good genes or bad genes. That's about as far as most people get. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, so well, what, what are these things, you know? so. It turns out genes are basically coded information which reside on our DNA. And that has to somehow be used to make all the different proteins mm. that make up life. So the reason you're able to see me or, or see the screen is because there's a protein in your eye that senses light. Mm. The reason that you can breathe oxygen and deliver it to your muscle is there's a a molecule called hemoglobin, a protein called hemoglobin, which takes the oxygen in your lungs, goes through your blood, and delivers it to the muscles. So and antibodies, when you get an infection, you generate antibodies. Those are all proteins. The fact that you can hear is due to other kinds of proteins, or touch, or smell. They're all due to proteins. Memory is formed by proteins. So Proteins do a huge variety of things, and every one of them is made using information encoded in our genes. Now, the molecule I study, the ribosome, 
is what does that translating. It takes that information and actually makes the protein. But it doesn't do it directly on DNA. DNA is like, you can think of it as a, a library or an archive. And then you make copies of different parts of the DNA as you need them. And those copies of genes are called mRNA. Now, three years ago, nobody had heard of mRNA. But now, of course, after COVID, everybody knows about mRNA because of the vaccine based <laughs> right, on right. mRNA, right? Right, right? But what that mRNA is, is simply the gene for it, a copy of the gene in the coronavirus that codes for the spike protein. Mm -hmm. And the way that vaccine works is the mRNA gets translated by my molecule, the ribosome, to make the spike protein and displays it. And then our immune system recognizes it as a foreign protein, makes antibodies to it. Then when the real coronavirus in, invades us, it's already prepared, you know, with antibodies and, and an immune reaction to it. So you get the gist of it. The ribosome is at the very heart. It's at the crossroads between our genes and the products that they specify. Mm. You know, so it's very, very fundamental to biology. Mm. So you can think of me as a molecular biologist who works on the ribosome. And mm. that's not how I started off, but that's another story. Yeah, well, that's great. You give a you give a nice segue into it. I, I want to ask you about how you started out. You know, briefly. I mean, obviously, you know, it's <laughs> it's hard to detail one's so life. I, I was like born. That. I was born in India, and um, I, except for a year and a half when I spent in Australia, I basically grew up in India until I was nineteen. Mm. And at nineteen, I graduated with a degree in physics. And I came to America, which was, you know, to me, the land of opportunity and, you know, excitement, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I've been, mm -hmm. you know, I had a whole childhood full of Hollywood movies. So there, <laughs> you know, so this was the place to go to. And so I, I ended up at, at the age of 19 going to Ohio University to go to graduate school in physics. Mm. And I like to say the only notable thing I did in my five years in graduate school in physics is that I met and married my wife, you know, because the physics turned out to be not for me, you know, so I had no trouble taking courses and, you know, doing well on exams. But once I started doing actual research physics, uh, I realized, you know, I wasn't working on a problem that interested me. And I thought, you know, maybe I, I should look around and see what's exciting, what's what's going on in the world of science. And I used to read Scientific American, and I, and I still do actually occasionally. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that there were lots and lots of articles describing big breakthroughs in molecular biology. Mm. You know, that's when the sequence, you know, first sequences of DNA were coming out, mm -hmm. you know, and that resulted in a Nobel Prize to Fred Sanger. And people were first figuring out what biological molecules like proteins looked like. They were understanding the immune system, the basis of the nervous system. The whole huge, big problems were, you know, being cracked open. Mm. And so I thought, this is a revolution. You know, I want to join this. Yeah. And, but I didn't know any biology. So I uh, finished my PhD in physics. Uh, I didn't want to be a quitter and you know, leave halfway through. Mm -hmm. But then I decided 
instead of going on to the next stage, which is like a postdoctoral research fellow, I thought I should go back to grad school. And I went, so I applied to a bunch of grad schools. Some of them wouldn't even take me because they said, you already have a PhD in physics, mm-hmm. so you can't, we can't take you as a grad student. Mm-hmm. But uh, University of California in San Diego uh, said, sure, you can come as a grad student and uh, we'll take you. So they gave me a fellowship. By this time I was married, I had a six-year-old stepdaughter and a, a six-week-old son, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And we have to pack all our stuff into a, rider truck and drive it from Ohio to San Diego. That was quite a trip. Anyway, so, uh, so I started grad school in biology. And, you know, after a couple of years, I realized I'd picked up enough biology. In fact, I even took undergrad courses, you know, even though I had a PhD. Because initially, I didn't understand a thing, you know, and so I had to start at the beginning. And then I, after a couple of years, I decided I was ready to take that next step. And so I wrote to these two professors at Yale who were working on the ribosome. And I said, you know, how about, um, you know, I come and work for you as a postdoc, uh, which is the next step after a PhD. And actually, one of them had offered me, a po- well, not offered me, but said he would be interested in hiring me straight out of my PhD. And I told him, no, I don't know any biology, so I, I can't take that step. So I told him, well, you were willing to consider me when I didn't know a thing. Uh, you know, know anything about biology. And now I've learned some biology, so maybe you're still interested. Mm. And, and so they hired me, and that's how I got into studying the ribosome. Mm. And, and, and so you, you, you stayed with, with the ribosome, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, which is interesting. You know, most problems don't last 40 years or 50 <laughs> years, okay? You know, you, you, you solve it and you move on. Uh, or you're really dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And, sure, and you yeah. know, so, so, so most problems don't last that long. But the ribosome is so complex. It has half a million atoms. Nobody knew what it even looked like, let alone how it worked or moved. So it just took a very, very long time mm. uh, to, to make those breakthroughs. Mm. You know? mm. Yeah. You were, you were talking about it a little bit earlier, but maybe you could just kind of land here for a minute and, you know, really just explain to listeners the makeup of the ribosome, how it functions. You talk about in the book, these kind of small and large subunits, which are really important and yeah. obviously with tRNA and mRNA. So maybe talk about the ribosome and how yeah. it works. Okay. So let's start with, with DNA. DNA contains the gene and the gene is basically like a string of letters, you know, so the DNA is made of a four-letter alphabet, they're called bases. We call them A, T, C, or G. And the order of the letters is what specifies the information. It's like a sentence. The order of letters in a sentence mm. uh, makes up the words and makes up the meaning of the sentence, mm. right? And so it's basically like that. So now you take a section of DNA that contains the information to make a protein, and you copy that. That's your mRNA. Now, in organisms like us, the DNA is tucked away in the nucleus of the cell. And, but the protein is made outside the nucleus, in the cytoplasm. So the mRNA has to be exported out. That's what happens. Then when it's exported out, ribosomes find the mRNA. And there's a complicated mechanism where they figure out where to start reading the code. Now, the ribosome, as I said, is an enormous complex. It has about 80 proteins of its own. Hmm. 
and but it's two thirds RNA. So that so you have an mRNA, which is one kind of RNA. There's a different kind of RNA that makes up the ribosome itself, the core of the ribosome. That's called ribosomal RNA. Hmm. And when it reads the code, it's not the building blocks of proteins are called amino acids. There are about twenty of them, hmm. and the code on DNA or RNA is read three at a time because there, there are hmm. only four of it's, DNA and RNA only have four types of building blocks. So if you read them one at a time, you'd only be able to code for four types of amino acids. Hmm. So you have to read them three at a time. That gives you 64 possibilities, which is sort of redundant, but, but you know, the redundancy is used mm-hmm. in, a, in an in interesting ways. But how's that, how's that three letter of, on the mRNA recognized to bring in the correct building block of the protein, which is the amino acid. So it turns out there's like a, a bridging molecule. And that's, called, that's another RNA called transfer RNA. Hmm. And what that RNA has, it has three bases that read the code on the mRNA. So if it matches, that tRNA is accepted. And at the other end, it has, brings in the amino acid. Now, what the ribosome does is it assembles these tRNAs inside it, you know, two at a time, and links in the amino acid from the new tRNA to the growing protein chain on the other tRNA. Hmm. And then the whole assembly has to move. So it's like a machine where the tRNAs come in, deliver the amino acid, and then move through the ribosome and get injected. And Hmm. all the while, the protein chain is getting longer and longer, adding one amino acid at a time. So I can think of, imagine, you know, like the, well, nobody knows what a ticker tape is anymore because everything's electronic. <laughs> but think of it like a, a long paper tape in, in which all the information is written out. And you've got this little machine that's reading this tape, bringing in the components it needs to build up the protein as it goes. Hmm. It's very, very complicated. And to your listeners, I'd say, you know, if you sort of Google my name and the ribosome on, on YouTube and, and a translation, which is a movie about translation, we, we put a movie out there which shows how the ribosome works. It's mm. really amazing. Mm. You've got these two subunits which kind of ratchet, you know, so it's like a ratchet moving along the mRNA. And, uh, you know, that's why you need the two subunits is so that they can move relative to each other. And one of the subunits is the part where the code is read. And the other subunit is where the protein uh, chain is is made by Mm. adding amino acids. So that's another distinction between these two subunits. Mm. So it's highly complicated, very, very old machine. It's one of the oldest molecules in life. Mm. You know, we have it. All species of life uh, have ribosomes. They can't live without a ribosome. And it, even viruses which don't have ribosomes use our ribosomes to make wow. their protein. Wow. So, I mean, this is obviously essential for, as you're saying, all of life. I'm assuming unicellular and multicellular organisms. And so <clears throat> when you started looking at this, so this is the, the interesting thing I want to kind of figure out here because there's the book does this where it, it does a lot of science, but it also is, you know, kind of, you know, your story as well. When you started doing this work in the seventies, eighties, whenever you started looking at this. Yeah, late seventies, yeah, early eighties. What, what did we know about the ribosome when you started 
And where are yeah. we now? Of course, you're a, obviously a central figure in this story. But when you first started out, how, how, what did we know? What did we not know? And what has that evolution been we, like? We, of knowing? We, we, knew, we knew quite a lot. So, for example, okay. we knew what the composition of the ribosome was. Mm. We knew that it had two subunits. It was itself made of two thirds of it was made of RNA. Mm. But the remaining one third was split up into about 50, 50 or 80 proteins, 50 in bacteria, 80 in us. Our mm. ribosome is somewhat bigger than bacterial mm. ribosome. And so we knew that, and we knew about mRNA, we knew about the tRNAs deliver the building blocks of the protein to the ribosome. Mm. Uh, so we knew quite a lot. And we also knew another important thing, that lots of antibiotics work by blocking the ribosome, by blocking bacterial ribosomes. So uh, I think we knew quite a bit. What we didn't know was how the ribosome does it all. I mean... Mm. How does it actually work? And the problem was you couldn't visualize it in detail because it was too big by the technology of the, you know, it was discovered in the late 50s. And, you know, and then people started working on it right from then. But, you know, in the 50s, 60s and 70s and even 80s, the technology to try and visualize in atomic detail what the ribosome looks like uh, wasn't there. And the analogy I use in the book is, imagine, you know, if you're a Martian hovering above the Earth, and you saw these little objects moving around. In Manhattan, they would move in straight lines, but here in Cambridge, England, they'd be, you know, wiggling around these winding roads. Mm -hmm. And you'd think, oh, these are interesting, and they, you know, they'd stop, and then little objects would come out of it. And then when the little objects came, went back in it, it would start again. Mm -hmm. you would, you'd have some idea. Then you get closer and you say, wait a minute, this thing requires gasoline and it puts out, you know, uh, carbon dioxide and water and some pollution. Uh, still wouldn't know what it worked, looked like. Uh, I mean, what it, how it worked, right? Mm. But then you start looking at it closely and you realize it's got a steering wheel and four wheels and it's got an engine and a crankshaft and all the stuff and you know, pistons inside the engines, or if you're a modern car, you know, it's some electric motor. So <laughs> then you'd understand how a car works, right? But if you didn't yeah. know what it looked like, you'd be stuck. You'd have no yeah. idea how it worked. Mm. And so it's the same with chemistry and, and, and biology. A lot of science has advanced by being able to visualize it. We didn't know that cells existed. You know, if mm. we hadn't seen cells, we wouldn't understand biology. Because, you know, we wouldn't know anything about cells and nuclei. And, right. and it's the same with ribosomes. So the ribosome was sort of like a black box. Mm. We knew it was made up of these things, and we knew what it did, but we didn't know how it did. Mm. You know, and we didn't know how antibiotics would block it. You know, mm. we just knew that they blocked it. Mm. So, so I think that it's that real understanding in sort of chemical terms, how ribosome works. That's that, that was the big puzzle. And people mm. just, you know, didn't have the technology in, in the 70s mm. to figure that out. That was, took a while to get. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you mentioned that, that process. And you, you talk about something that was a little bit unfamiliar for me, so maybe you can explain it here, was this use of X-ray crystallography, right, which is uh, yeah. essential for studying and knowing the ribosome. Just tell us what this is how this works and why it was important yeah. for understanding the ribosome. Yeah, so 
in until recently, the only way to get atomic structure of something like the ribosome was use a technique called crystallography. So let me suggest to your readers, how would you, how would you see something that's really small? I mean, I talk about the ribosome is very large, but it's tiny. You know, in everyday terms, it's absolutely tiny, small, much smaller than a cell. You know, it's just large in molecular terms. So if we wanted to see something small, what we would do is we'd take a magnifying glass and magnify it. Or we would take a combination of lenses like a microscope and magnify it even more and see it in detail, right? But it turns out that there's a law in physics which says you can't see the kind of detail that's smaller, you know, much smaller than the wavelength that you're using. Hmm. Okay. And the wavelength of light is, you know, it's measured in nanometers. A nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Okay. A meter is roughly a yard for mm-hmm. American users. So, um, so anyway, it's about a billionth of a meter. Uh, now, light is about 500 nanometers, okay, mm-hmm. in wavelength. Mm-hmm. Now, the distance between atoms is like one-tenth of a nanometer, okay? So, you know, light has way too big a wavelength to, to visualize the kind of detail uh, where you would see atomic detail. So the way that to get around it is to use a kind of radiation that has a much smaller wavelength, mm. and that's X-rays. Now, X-rays are basically light. They're the same physical object as light, except their wavelength is much shorter. And that wavelength, so they're much higher energy than light, and that's why X-rays can damage us, and so you know, we have to protect ourselves mm-hmm. against X-rays. Uh, but, but otherwise, they're basically light. To a physicist, there's no distinction. They're photons. And the, but the trouble is that there's no good lens to magnify X-rays, you know, to magnify an image with X-rays. And even if there were, the, the signal from a single molecule wouldn't be enough. You know, by the time you got enough signal, you'd have fried the molecule because X-rays, as I said, are damaging. They would just basically destroy the molecule. Hmm. So the way around that was to, okay, l- let me back up and say, how does a lens work? Well, what a lens does is it takes scattered rays from the object and recombine them into an image. For example, when you see the image on the screen, and you know, when you're looking at me, the scattered rays from the screen go into your eye, your eye has a lens, and it combines them to form an image on your retina. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, let's suppose you weren't there the scattered rays would still be there. They'd mm. have the same information. Mm. Okay, so the lens is not creating the information. It's simply using the information. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what people figured out was that if you, tend, if you crystallize a molecule, and what crystallization means is you produce a very ordered stack of the molecule. Okay? Mm. And this is a bit like, you know, every child knows how to crystallize salt or sugar. You just take a solution and let it dry out. You get crystals, okay? But if you have a big, complicated molecule like the ribosome, it's hard to get crystals, and they're very people use various tricks to try and get it. But basically, you're coaxing the molecules to come together into a very regular stack, Mm. and it's like a three-dimensional stack, right? Mm. 
And then you shoot that with x-rays. What happens is, because you have this very ordered stack, you get a phenomenon where rays add up along certain directions, the x-rays. So instead of scattering all over the place, they're mm. scattered along certain spots. And you can measure those spots. Okay? Mm. Now, when you measure those scattered rays, you have the information that a lens has. But you don't, mm. So you'd have to, you could do what a lens does, which is recombine them. And what you can do that is you can do that mathematically. So hmm. what a lens effectively does is a mathematical operation of recombining the rays. And knowing what the lens does, we can do that in a computer. Hmm. So we can do in a computer exactly what a lens does. And so effectively, you're sort of using x-rays and using crystals to generate the scattered rays, which you can then use in a computer to combine it to form a, a three-dimensional image of the object. And that's how crystallography works. I, I, it's a very sort of, you know, non-technical view <laughs> of crystallography. The feel, you know, crystallography is highly mathematical, mm. uh, but I've, I've just given you a kind of concept of how, yeah, how yeah. basically how it works. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, you know, the method that was used to form, you know, solve the ribosome. But why did it take so long? Well, a couple of reasons. One is, first of all, it's hard to get crystals of the ribosome. And one of the people who started that field was Ada Yonat, with whom I shared the Nobel Prize and about whom I talk a lot in this book. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, the book, I have to say, is very, very frank, uh, you know, about people, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't pull any punches as far as, <laughs> you know, what I think of, you know, various players. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's no question that Ada Yonat was the first person to get real crystals of the uh, ribosome, and that's what's got the ball rolling. But the other thing you need is uh, you need these crystals don't diffract, don't, don't produce a strong enough signal. And so to get enough signal, you need extremely powerful sources of X-ray. Hmm. Now, a lab X-ray machine is a, some, quite a bit more powerful than the X-ray machine in your dentist's office. Okay? <laughs> But, but it's still not that powerful. Hmm. So, so what we have to do is we have to wait for the development of synchrotrons, which are these very, very large particle accelerators. They accelerate electrons round and round a ring at the speed of very close to the speed of light. And in doing so, they emit extremely powerful fans of X-rays. Hmm. And you can take some of those X-rays into a beam and, you know, focus them into a very concentrated beam and hit your crystal with that. And that produces enough signal to, um, you know, to, to, to get the kind of data you need. You also needed very sophisticated detectors to detect the X-rays. And, uh, one interesting thing is that the people who got the physics Nobel Prize the same year we got the chemistry one had actually developed these CCD detectors. Hmm. And of course, they're used not only for X-ray detectors, but they were, they're also used in all our cameras and everything, you know? So, <laughs> so it's really kind of funny. We wouldn't have been there if they hadn't been, you know, done hmm. their uh, job. Nice. So, yeah. so we had to thank them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that was the other thing. And then another thing that was really important is the development of more powerful computers and computer graphics. Because 
the kind of data involved in collecting ribosome, you know, they're like half a million, they're millions of data points to, to try and get half a million atoms in position. And so you needed, you know, much faster computers and faster graphics. And all of that sort of developed while we were doing it. So we were using cutting edge technology as we, as we were going. When, with this, so this is this is what's interesting. I'm glad that you brought it up. You you mentioned in the in the in the book that uh, you can talk about some of the specifics here about ribosomes crystallizing. Uh, you mentioned specifically the crystals of GH five and S five. So if you want to be specific, you can. But you, you mentioned yeah. how how important it was to go to the LMB in Cambridge, right? And how yeah. there is where you start to kind of, uh, not build, but kind of show the building of the ribosome structure. So, so tell about that yeah. experience. Yeah, so I, um, you know, I did my postdoc at Yale and I was using a very esoteric technique called neutron scattering. And that was a technique that physicists have used a lot, but in biology, its use has been quite limited. You know, it, mm. it's not really taken off as a big technique like X-ray crystallography or electron microscopy or things like that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so after my uh, postdoc, I had a lot of trouble finding a job. I, in fact, I applied to like 50 universities. I didn't get a single interview. Mm. Okay. Wow. And, and then I got a job for a brief time at Oak Ridge National Lab, but that didn't really work out. And so I... Uh, then moved to Brookhaven National Lab, where, you know, I did, that's where I really started my career. But after a few years of it, of using these techniques, I thought, look, if I really want to understand how the ribosome works, I need to understand how to do X-ray crystallography. Mm. And I don't know how to do it. So I convinced my department that I should go on sabbatical. And I wrote to Aaron Klug, who was the director of the Medical Research Council's Lab of Molecular Biology uh, in Cambridge, England. Mm. And the reason I wrote it is that's the birthplace of crystallography. First of, of any crystallography was, you know, in 1912 when Lawrence Bragg uh, figured out how he could do structures by crystals, uh, by using crystallography. But then to use it for proteins, uh, a guy named Max Perutz, who started the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, which is the LMB, he's the guy who first figured out how to solve protein structure using crystallography. So I thought this would be a great place to learn crystallography. Of course, my wife and I, even though you know we're Americans, we're kind of Anglophiles. We like Monty Python and you know watching masterpiece theater and stuff like that. <laughs> so we thought it'd be cool to spend a year in Cambridge. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I went there and. Uh, the lab was kind of, it was kind of weird. You know, if you went from a, like a, a well-funded American university to the LMB as it existed, now we have a fancy new building. But in 1991, <laughs> it, it was a shabby old building. There were like equipment in all the hallways because it was overcrowded. You know, oh, probably violate, in America, it would have violated all sorts of fire codes. <laughs> and, and, you know, and. Everything looked a bit shabby, but the weird thing was almost any equipment you needed, they had. It was all mm -hmm. tucked away somewhere, you know, squirreled away in a basement corner or something, you know, but you, it was there. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing I noticed there was people, 
didn't waste their time work doing like what I call, you know, you know, routine science. Okay, mm. they're all you know working on big problems, and part of the reason was that the place had very stable funding, mm. and so you know they were not afraid to you know work on the really tough, challenging problems. And also senior scientists would often work themselves. You know, they wouldn't just sit in an office and, you know, direct other people. Mm. So, so, that, so I had a lot of, you know, it had a very special culture. And my host was a fellow of the Royal Society. He was like, you know, well-known scientist. Mm. And when I arrived, you know, there was no desk for me. So I said, well, you know, how about if I just, you know, take a, use a desk in your office just for, uh, you know, a little while. And he kind of smiled at me because he didn't have an office. You know, he was this famous guy. He had no office. You know, he had a little desk himself, you know. So, so it was a very strange place. And, uh, you know, so I had a very good time. And I took two small, you know, data from two small protein crystals uh, to learn how to solve uh, structures uh, using crystallography. And I'd already collected the data at Brookhaven, so I didn't have to actually do any experiment, but I'd learned how to process the data, how to analyze it, how to build a protein structure, et cetera. And that's what gave me the idea that actually you could use a particular method in crystallography. There are different approaches, and you could use a particular approach even for a very big thing like the ribosome. So when I finished my year, I already had this germ of this idea that actually there ought to be able to, it ought to be possible even to solve something really big like the ribosome using this method. Mm. Mm. That's, that's so interesting how, you know, we, we have these ideas about these, you know, various places and then, you know, it's, it's always not quite the same, but it sounds like the quality was there. And that's nothing to say about American universities or anything like that. But No, no. I mean, America has fantastic science. It's, but, but, I, but I think the LMB, I, which is the lab of molecular biology, the LMB has a special history. And also it's trained, I would say, many American Nobel laureates mm. were postdocs at the LMB. It's a, mm. It has this amazing influence, mm. worldwide yeah. influence on molecular biology. I mean, you know, starting with Watson and Crick and, mm-hmm. and Sanger, you know, figuring out how to sequence DNA and the first virus, you know, mm-hmm. uh, organizations, mm-hmm. uh, lots of things, you know, yeah. antibodies. Mm-hmm. And most recently, electron microscopy, you know, which has taken mm-hmm. the world by storm. Wow. So, so it's had a long history of, of mm-hmm. really one big breakthrough after another. Mm-hmm. And I should tell you another thing that I learned there, you know, mm-hmm. so I, was, I would go to a seminar. You know, this would be when visiting scientists would come and talk about their work. Mm-hmm. And there are all these famous Nobel laureates sitting there in the audience. I was complete awe of them. And then I would, they would ask the dumbest questions after the talk, you know, like things that seemed really simple to me. Or, you know. And I realized that just because, you know, they're smart at one thing, it doesn't mean they knew something, knew everything. And they didn't care mm. about showing their ignorance. You know, they realized that, you know, being ignorant is not, a sh- not nothing to be ashamed of. That's mm. why you ask a question, you know. Mm. Mm. So it made me realize, you know, that just because you may be an expert in your field doesn't mean you know everything. And also you should have some humility and, and not be worried about asking questions, you know, mm. if you don't know. Mm. And, and mm. that was another 
very interesting lesson. You know, these people were not, you know, they were not kind of stuffy. Mm, mm. You know? well, that has to be, again, such a good model for, for young scientists and for people that are trying to figure things out, this kind of way of having this kind of epistemic humility of like, yeah, I don't know everything. And it's fine to say, I don't know everything. I know, exactly. I know a yeah. few things in my field for sure, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to know everything. I think, I think, yeah. I think that's and what makes you a good scientist. They were asking the simplest thing, mm-hmm. you know, even the mm-hmm. simplest question, they, mm-hmm. they were not ashamed to ask it. Mm-hmm. And so that, that really was an eye opener. And I thought mm-hmm. that was great. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I want to, I want to, you talk about in the book, I mean, what was this experience like for you to see an RNA helix of part of a ribosome for the first time and, and yeah, seeing the so, atomic structures of those subunits? Yeah, Tell me about that. It's, it's, totally, it's totally amazing. So what happens is, you know, all this hard work, collecting the, making the crystals, you know, getting special atoms that you need, uh, which have some properties for the x-rays, which allows you to solve the structure, mm-hmm. taking it all, I mean, the crucial data set that we collected, we had to go to Chicago uh, to collect it. So we, we, had to, we took our crystals in these liquid nitrogen containers, you know, on the airplane, you know, luckily this was, uh, you know, well, it was 2000. So it was before 9-11, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so otherwise, you know, who knows what, what the situation would be now, you know, anyway, we, we took them all, you know, uh, on the airplane. Uh, checked them all in, and then drove from Chicago Airport to Argonne National Lab, which is about you know twenty miles away, mm-hmm. and uh, which has a which had what was the most powerful synchrotron uh, in the world in those mm-hmm. days, and uh, and then and also had a very special instrument that allowed us to align our crystals very precisely, and and we needed that for a technical reason, and anyway, so. We got there, and you, the way it works is you're given two days of, of X-ray time, instrument time. Hmm. So, and the X-rays are produced round the clock, so you can't go to sleep. You know, you have to work in shifts. So, you know, hmm. we worked in twelve-hour shifts. We took four people, and you know, two people worked the day, two people worked the night, and actually, we kind of staggered it so there's always some overlap. And after forty-eight hours. You don't know if your experiments actually worked until you do the calculation. Mm. And once we did the calculation and then actually did the calculation to, to, to uh, calculate the math, uh, it's, it's really an amazing feeling because then you say, wow, you can see all this detail. Mm. Uh, and then you still don't know what the structure is. You have to build it into, the, into this image. Uh, and it's a bit like solving a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you know what the pieces look like and you have to figure out how the pieces go in this image. And, and then you end up with a structure of a molecule. But just seeing that image and seeing, you know, RNA helices and, and proteins attached to them and all these, you know, snaky things. Uh, it was really pretty amazing. And I like, you know, in the book I describe, it's like seeing a new continent. You've seen, you're yeah. seeing something. Yeah that nobody's seen before. That's so cool. Nobody in the world has seen this particular thing, which is at the heart of biology, right? So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a big rush. Well, well, and also knowing how consequential it is. It's not like it's just seeing like, 
you know, you know, a, a different uh, side of, of, you know, this coast of, you know, the coastline of a country that we already know exists. Like you're seeing yeah. something the first time that's super essential for all yeah. living things on the planet. I mean, that's, that's sure. incredible. Yeah. 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 In fact, you know, <laughs> I, well, I, I, I say this in my book, I'm, I'm not exactly a, a jump up and down kind of guy, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm usually, in, especially in the lab, I'm pretty calm yeah. uh, most of the time. Although my family probably would disagree with that. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, when we did this calculation, we'd made a mistake. And when, when it spat out the results, we thought the experiment had failed. Mm. And then I noticed a little error in our script, you know, that we had submitted for the calculation. And we corrected the error. And then as soon as it spat out these numbers, we knew the experiment had worked. Mm. And, you know, I had this very reserved English technician. <laughs> and when I saw it at work, I couldn't contain myself. You know, it was like 48 hours of, you know, <laughs> sleepless stuff and then months of, you know, tension sure. going into that uh, thing. Suddenly, like, wow, it's worked. And I just got up and I started dancing around the room saying, we're going to be famous. We're going to be famous. <laughs> I thought I was nuts, you know, because I think, you know, he, he realized the ribosome was important, but I, I, I'm not sure he realized quite how important it was, you know? So it's amazing. Anyway, that's, it was pretty amusing. That's so amazing. And, and, and on the cover of the book, this is the ribosome, right? This is a picture of the yeah, ribosome. It is, it is a picture of the ribosome that I, uh, uh, actually, I generated that picture wow. using computer graphics. So. <laughs> wow, it's it's so it's so amazing how 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 it looks at this level. Of course, it's super small, but but when you when you blow it up, yeah, and that's a and that I should say is a highly simplified representation. Really, wow! Because you know it's actually made up of half a million atoms. Mm. If I were to show you the all the atoms, it would just look like a mess of atoms. You know, you wouldn't wow. be able to make any sense of it. So it's a, so people try to simplify you know, their representation of protein. So you can sort of see something about the architecture and how it's you know, put together. Well, it's, it's interesting, just, just, just kind of on the face, the face of it, it, it just seems very, um, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of contours to it. It's very sprawling. It's very out there. It's, yeah. very, it's a lot of, it's, it's got, it's like tentacles yeah. and everything, which is. Yeah, unlike DNA, it, DNA is a very simple and beautiful mm -hmm, mm -hmm. molecule. Mm -hmm. uh, the ribosome is like, Something that sort of grew into this uh -huh. kind of monstrous yeah. thing, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, you you knew you were going to be famous. Uh, you know, you knew you'd be in the, the well, in a limited way, right, 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 <laughs> right, right, right. You'll be in 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 in, in biology and in chemistry history forever. But how was that like process then of like? You know, the afters, right? Okay, you, you see this, you have the team of folks that see this, and then getting it published and getting people to talk about it, and then finally this whole idea of you know, people, you, you talk about in the book, I didn't know all this is, it's like a process of the Nobel prize. It doesn't just like happen overnight. It's like a whole thing. No, no. Uh, well, you know, so first of all, the structure was only a beginning because once we had the basic structure, we could figure out how antibiotics bind to, and that's really very straightforward. Mm. So these antibiotics were discovered in the forties and fifties. And, you know, now for the first time, we could actually see them in action. Mm. See how exactly what they how they block the bacterial ribosome. That's amazing, and why it's safe for us to take them because they don't bind so well to our own ribosomes. 
Wow. You know, so, so they don't poison us, but oh. they poison bacteria by stopping bacteria in their tracks. So, so that was another excitement. Mm -hmm. Then figuring out how the code is read and why is the code read so accurately? You know, mm -hmm. that was another big mm -hmm. uh, step. And then over the years, we, we then started working on, you know, first I worked on the small subunit, but then I started working on the whole ribosome mm. and figuring out how it moves and how it terminates and how it starts. You know, so all these things, different steps uh, took years and years. And, and so we were doing science, you know, one thing after another. It wasn't like we were sitting around after the first structure. <laughs> you put, waiting for you put your feet up and you just say, don't wait for all the phone calls. You just you had to keep exactly. working, working, right? You so keep it wasn't like that. No, no, no. We were working, you know, <laughs> working our tails off. So, you know, so I think, you know, and it's, it's not just because it's because it was exciting to find, find out the next step and the next step and the next step because figuring out this, how this machine works. Mm. Okay. And it's like getting snapshots of the machine in action so that you can kind of make the movie of the machine mm -hmm. working, you mm -hmm. know? So, so I think that's, that's what we were uh, after. And that each one of those projects took, you know, sometimes several years, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. so, um, so that was what we were doing. But in the meantime, you know, people were already getting excited. This was this big discovery. We were getting invited to all kinds of meetings. Mm -hmm. And... You know, from 2000 onwards, I was getting invited to meetings in Sweden uh, almost every year from 2001 to 2004. Mm. Okay. Wow. And 2004, there was this huge meeting. Well, not, it was not huge in numbers, but it was like a very important meeting. Mm. Lots of famous scientists, people who discovered how DNA replicates and how DNA is copied to RNA and... Uh, you know, and the ribosome, all sorts of, you know, related fields. There are all these famous scientists there. And, you know, you could tell that this was Swedes basically taking a look at us, you know. Mm. And it was like an audition, I think, you know. Mm. And uh, so, anyway, you know, lots of, and often there'd be members of the committee there. And sometimes I didn't even know who these people were, you know. And, uh, you know, and then other people would say, hey, do you know those people on the committee? You know, things like that. And, you could also see how scientists, famous scientists, mm. would act like really nervous, like graduate students before a, you know, a, a qualifying exam, you know? They were like really nervous giving their talks and because they sort of knew that there was quite a lot at stake, you know, because, you know, they were being sort of judged. And it was, it was like a very weird feeling. These people were all big shots, you mm. know? Many of them, you couldn't, they wouldn't give you the time of day normally. And here they were really nervous because, you know, they were in Sweden before uh, people in the committee. Mm. So that was, that was sort of an interesting sociology. Mm. And so, you know, often the same gang of people would go around the talk circuit. There'd be like different conferences, different parts of the world, and you'd see the same people giving the same talk. Mm. You know, it was a bit like a, almost like a campaign in a way. And uh, in 2004 was my last one. And then I decided, you know, for reasons I go into in the book, I decided that, you know, uh, the hell with this. I'm, I'm not doing this, uh, you know, anymore. And I basically stopped going to Sweden for hmm. almost five years. Uh, except I, I, I only gave one talk and that was to a, because a friend of mine invited me hmm. uh, to his institute. But 
other than that, I just didn't go to any meetings there. And uh, so I was kind of surprised, you know, in the end to be one of the three, you know, because a Nobel Prize has this other limitation that they only give it to three people at most. Mm. So if more than three people have competed, uh, have not competed, have, have contributed mm. to, the, to, the, uh, to the process, then, you know, it's, it becomes, you know, who's, who's going to be the three that, you know, get that phone call. And so it's a bit like musical chairs, you know, who's going, to, who's going to have the three be sitting in one of the three chairs when the music stops, you know? Mm, mm. So, so I, I didn't, I didn't think I'd be one of them mm. for complicated reasons. Uh, but, you know, so it was a bit of a surprise. Mm. And so when you, I mean, what, what was it like to get that, that phone call where it was 2008 or nine or whatever it was? And, and in 2009, they only give you about half an hour's notice. So, you know, they call you half an hour before they go live with the uh, live uh-huh. with the announcement. Oh, wow. And, and they, they, in fact, the guy said, enjoy your last 30 minutes of peace. <laughs> you know? Everybody around the world is calling you and emailing you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so but it was quite funny because I, I didn't believe it. And, and one of the reasons I didn't believe it is in, in that meeting in 2004, there's a very famous ribosome biochemist in Sweden. And he, he was at that meeting and he and I, he had a big disagree, disagreement with me about a key aspect, how the ribosome is accurate mm. in, 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 in reading the code. And uh, so he came up to me after the banquet and had a big fight with me, mm. you know. Mm. And then a few months later, I found out he was on the Nobel Committee for Chemistry. <laughs> so I thought, well, there's no way this guy is going to pick me as one of his three because, you know, he doesn't really, he really dislikes my work, you know? Mm. So I, um, I sort of gave up on it. And so when I got the phone call, I didn't quite believe it. I thought maybe it was a prank. You know, I have <laughs> some friends who might, you know, convince some Swedish guy to call me in and pretend, you know, it was a Nobel uh, committee. Or, so anyway, so I, I told the guy, look, why don't you put this guy on the, on the phone? Because if it's real, then he's, he's a member of the committee, so he's probably there. Right. And then this guy, Mons Ehrenberg, came on the, on the line, and that's when I knew it was real. Oh, wow. wow. And uh, so and you have to hand it to the guy because he put aside his differences about one small aspect of the work and looked at the big picture. Mm-hmm. And he realized that in the big picture, I mean, he felt in the big picture, I had made a major contribution. Mm. So he put aside his little disagreement. And many people wouldn't have done that. You know, they would have been petty about it. Mm. You know, they would have let this personal feeling get in the way uh, of being objective. And it shows that these people really have integrity. I mean, they're humans, so they Mm. uh, can make mistakes. And people can argue about their decisions, but I don't think they're dishonest, mm. and I don't think mm. they're mm. political. Mm. And that's one thing I, I do believe mm. about the Nobel Prize. You know, you can you can tell me about like you know a little bit about getting the the award and, and the, the ceremony and the whole thing. But I mean, when did it kind of hit you that that you you won a Nobel Prize? I mean, when did it like? I mean, there's the phone call, but then well, there's like all the afters, and then everything's kind of well, died down. But when did it hit you? It hit me, I guess, when 
I saw it on live online and saw them actually announcing it. Wow. Yeah. And then this deluge of phone calls. <laughs> they had to basically cut my phone line off, you know, and uh, for, for two days. It was like, it was nonstop for two days. Wow. And, uh, and even my wife couldn't get through. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what was it? I guess, you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're from, from India. I mean, what was that like, you know, for to, to, to oh, be from India to get a Nobel Prize? It's kind of funny because, you know, I had become an American citizen in the mid-80s. Sure, sure, sure. And I had not really gone to India very much at all. Uh, or in 30 years, uh, when I lived in America, I'd only been to India three times. Wow, wow. And I'd left India when I was 19. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of connections with Indian science mm-hmm. until the early 2000s. Hmm. When I was in England, I went to my first meeting in India, a scientific meeting. And then that made me connect with a bunch of Indian scientists. And then I would visit uh, every year or every other year. Hmm. Uh, But by and large, except for the science community, the Indians basically ignored me. You know, so when I became a national member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, there was nothing in India mm. saying, you know, about me. When I became a fellow of the Royal Society, there was nothing, you know, which is the British equivalent, mm-hmm. uh, actually predates the National Academy. So, mm. uh, so, you know, Indians by and large had ignored me, except for the people in my field who knew mm. uh, that what I'd done was uh, important. And so after the, as soon as the Nobel Prize hit, suddenly mm-hmm. everybody in India was, you know, uh, sort of felt like, oh, this is our boy, you know, he's won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and, and I felt a little odd, you know, mm. because I hadn't lived there for 40 years and, mm. and, uh, and, uh, and uh, nobody had paid any attention to me. Mm. And suddenly I was hearing from, I was getting letters from government officials and the prime minister and the president and all these people congratulating me. And I, then I realized, well, actually, it's okay, because I grew up in India. I was educated in India. I did my whole undergraduate education in India. The Indian government paid for, I, I had a free education. Mm. You know, no, they paid for my whole tuition, and they paid me a stipend. Mm. You know, and, and then I left. So I do owe India quite a lot mm. for launching me as a, you know, educated to the point where I could go to grad school. Mm. So I thought, oh, you know, that's okay, you know, and, and, and I'm as much a product of India as I am of America or of Britain. You know, each of those three countries has really uh, contributed something really significant mm. to, my, to my life and career. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Nobel Prize, but I mean, then, then there's all these, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm curious. You, you get all of these things, you know, if people, you know, look you up online, you... You have so many uh, awards and honors. I mean, one of them is the Order of Merit, which is like been given to like 20 people or something, right? Like it's crazy. Well, yeah, there are only 24 people. It can only have only 24 people at any one time can have it. Right, Somebody has to what, die. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, I mean, <laughs> that's wild. I mean, some crazy people on that list and all these other things. And it's just, I don't know. What does it, 
Does it feel kind of surreal in some ways of like it, it is it is pretty surreal. And I have to say, you know, luckily my family doesn't treat me any <laughs> That's differently. Good. You know? That's good. We keep you on. <laughs> still have to do honest. the dishes, so you know. <laughs> I don't get any slack. That's good. That's good. They keep you honest. That's good. <laughs> they keep me honest. And my lab keeps me honest. And the LMB is one of those places. So and many universities, if you win a Nobel Prize. You suddenly become a big deal. You get a free, like at Berkeley, I, I'm told you get a free parking space. Right, right. You know? I've heard this. Yeah. And other places, you have a street named after right, you. You know, right, right. and in University of Utah, there's a street named after Mario Capecchi, who won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Here at the LMB, they've won so many Nobel prizes, they don't really care. And you know, I, I still, I don't even get a bicycle parking <laughs> space. You know, I, if I if I'm late for work, I have to hunt around for a place to <laughs> to lock my bike and. And and a few days after the Nobel, my director comes up to me and said, you know, I know you've been a little distracted, but, you know, your report is overdue. <laughs> 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 so, so, so there's no, no particular thing at, at the lab either. So. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, and that's, I think, know. healthy, you know. Mm. And, and by the way, science is a healthy environment. Mm. So just because I have a Nobel Prize doesn't mean it's easier for me to publish. That's good. Fact, That's good, though. I've noticed it's actually almost harder to publish right. because right. the anonymous reviewers say, "Hey, this guy thinks he's some big shot. We're going to, we're going to hold him to high standards." You know, I think I think there's some element of that because it's it's been just as difficult to yeah. get our papers published. Yeah. So I think science, you know, basically, science has all sorts of problems. Mm. Fundamentally, it's a it's a field that has integrity in. Yeah, and keeps people honest. It doesn't mean every everything in science is honest. Sure, There's sure. Obviously, all kinds of problems and fraud and so on. But yeah, but the but the process and the system uh, really is based on the fact that people have integrity. Yeah. Where what is it that you're working on now with the ribosome, and and where where do you want to see, or where do you hope to see, or predict to see the future of work on on the ribosome? Yeah. So I'm. I should say I'm only a few years away from, a couple of years away from retiring. Sure. And one of the things that um, we're trying to do is how do ribosomes know when to start and where to start mm. on the message? This agency, so it's not at the beginning. Is it, is this agency kind of factor of sorts, right? Of like, what is there, what's pushing it to know now versus not or things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that process called initiation is highly mm. regulated. Mm. So you can make the initiation efficient, you can make it less efficient, mm. you can disrupt it, and viruses will disrupt our initiation. For example, the first thing coronavirus does is it stops our ribosomes from initiating on our own mRNA. Mm. And mm. it has a trick that allows ribosomes to make the viral mRNA, translate the viral mRNAs, but, but not translate our mRNA. So that's just to give you an example. Mm. So that whole process of initiation, how it works, how it's regulated, that's a, a, a big complicated problem. And that's one of the things we're working on. Uh, one person in the, my lab is very interested in a problem called quality control and stress. So when, when cells starve, for example, if they're not enough nutrients, well, let's say they have, don't have amino acids to make protein. Why would they, you know, continue to translate? So they stop things. Mm. They stop the process. 
and then they divert it to uh, stress response genes. And how that works uh, involves the ribosome. It, if the ribosome is stalled because you know, it, it can't get tRNAs with the correct amino acid because there's a shortage of amino acids, or there's other kinds of stress, or, there's, or the mRNA is defective. There's all kinds of problems that you can encounter in the process. And the ribosome, the cell has elaborate quality control mechanisms, mm. many of which involve the ribosome. And so that's another area we're working. Mm. And um, another area that's of great interest for therapy is circular RNA. So normal RNA is what's called a linear RNA. It's like a string with two ends. Now, if you take those two ends and join them together and make a circle, mm. That would be a circular RNA, but that's, that's not normal. That's not the way most translations work. Hmm. But the reason circular RNA is important, interesting is because it's very stable, because most RNA gets broken down from the ends. Hmm. There are little protein enzymes that chew up the RNA from the ends. And if you have a circular RNA which has no ends, it can be very stable. So we're trying to understand how translation works from these circular RNAs. That, because that could be very important for mRNA-based therapy, hmm. you know, where you're supplying mRNA, which codes for a protein that could be defective in someone. Somebody has a genetic disease, hmm. and you could supply the mRNA with the correct form of the, of the gene and make the functional protein that would cure their disease. So it has important implications in therapy. Hmm. So that's another area we'll be Mm. I was gonna, I was, I was gonna ask about that. Is you know where we have things like various viruses, such as coronavirus, things like cancer, or obviously ribosomes are implicated in many things. It does seem like there's the more we learn, there's more uh, windows that open for trying to understand how we combat certain things or cure things yeah. or th of this nature. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, mm. absolutely, and understanding how ribosomes translate mRNA is key to really making mRNA therapeutics really effective. Mm. It's worked for the vaccine, but vaccines are a very limited use of that yeah. uh, potential. The potential is far greater. Mm. It's, it can be used for genetic correcting genetic diseases. It can be used to target cancer cells, mm. uh, as cancer vaccines. So, so there are many, many uses of mRNA therapy. And understanding like circular RNA translation could make that uh, therapy even better. Mm, mm. And so, so there are lots of things mm. uh, to study. And of course, designing better antibiotics. Sure. That's an, another big uh, thing. We, uh, we, you know, we're worried about, we saw what COVID did uh, to humanity during the pandemic. Yeah. But if we get a bacterial plague, uh, that could be really, really serious. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if it's resistant to antibiotics, we would have no mm. uh, recourse. So I think, you know, we need to try and stay ahead of the game mm -hmm. uh, by having good antibiotics in our arsenal mm. uh, in case, you know, in case we have these, uh, you know, bacterial mm. pandemics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's lots of lots of things, and of course. It's also fundamental biology. It's about how the cell regulates protein synthesis. It's involved in lots of things like aging and mm. memory and yeah. uh, Alzheimer's and all sorts of things.
Mm-hmm. They all involve protein production. Mm. And if we can somehow control or understand how that's regulated, uh, you know, we can start tackling many of these problems. Yeah. Well, my final question for you is, is, you know, you've, 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 you've made so much contribution to science and for many generations after you, you know, when you, when you look back on your life and both, you know, professionally and personally, you know, what what are the things that you consider? I mean, you know, you, you, you come from India, you've lived in America, you lived in Britain, you know, I think it's very interesting that, you know, you, (laughs) you have a PhD in theoretical physics and you start in physics, but (laughs) your whole life has been in something else. And it's, I have to imagine that perspective is, is, is you probably helpful in some way of, of just your straight biology. And and I'm sure there are many other things. How do you, how do you see your life in the, in these ways? I think, I think, you know, if you ask, why did my life work out? <laughs> so before I go to that, I want to say a little bit about the book that we haven't talked about, which is yeah. that the book is a very frank look at how science and scientists work. It's not just about the ribosome. The ribosome, they're kind of two parallel stories. Mm-hmm. There's the ribosome story, but there's also how, what scientists are like. You know, we're competitive, we're altruistic, <laughs> we're jealous of <laughs> egos, but we're also friendly and nice to each other. Mm. This, this complicated mix of humanity that makes up scientists, you know, that, that, you know, is part of the story as well. And so you ask about my own story, and, and that is, one thing I would say is I've been the reason that I might have succeeded is because I've been open to things. I've been open to changing fields mm. if things didn't work out. Mm. I've been open to changing institutions if I wasn't quite getting what I wanted in one place. I was not afraid to move. Mm. And I wouldn't even mind moving to a different country. Mm. You know, I took a huge salary cut to come to England. And you know, you have to sort of ask, what do you want out of life? And somehow make that possible. Mm. And to do that, you might have to be open to change uh, different circumstances, etc. The other thing is science is, doesn't pay a lot, but it's a lot of fun. Mm. You know, every day you come, you're trying to do something new. It's also international. You meet people from all over the world. You know, my lab now has somebody from Spain, Germany, China, America, India, and Ukraine. Mm. Okay, so that's sort of my lab. Okay. So I think, you know, it's this highly international endeavor. And it makes you realize that humans may have cultural differences, but underneath, you know, we're all the same. Mm. And we have the same aspirations. We all want to know what's happening. We want, you know, to look for the truth in science. Mm. Uh, And we all have the same aspirations. Fundamentally, we want to, you know, do good work, have families, et cetera. I think it gives you a, a, a really broad perspective mm. on, on life. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's very nicely said. Well, the book is called Gene Machine, The Race to Decipher the Secrets of the Ribosome. Uh, this is out through Basic Books. It's out in paperback now. Um, obviously, you, you, you've got a lot of things going on. Is there any place you want to point people to in particular, your lab, your research, any place you want folks to, to, to get at? I think if they Googled my name, Enki Ramakrishnan, it would direct them to our lab website and then they can sort of see uh, what's going on. Uh, the one thing you won't find in the website is is my new book, which is a book on why we age and die. Mm, nice. It's called Why We Die and that's coming out in, in March. Oh, very, very, so, very nice. Very, very nice. 
Well, uh, thank you. This was such a, a wonderful uh, privilege and, and honor. I, I, I really do. Thank oh, it's you. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Oh, it's thank my you pleasure. So much thank for you. coming on. I greatly appreciate it.